are listening to Stories from Palestine podcast, a podcast recorded in Palestine and about Palestine. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands and I am married to a Palestinian. We live in Beit Safafa between Jerusalem and Bethlehem and we run Singer Cafe and Al Chisar Bar in Beit Sahur. Before moving to Palestine in 2013, I worked as a teacher and tour guide in the Netherlands. I have a degree in history and in tour guiding and many years of tour guiding experience. Due to the COVID pandemic, tourism in Palestine came to a complete halt and that's why I started Stories from Palestine podcast in August 2020. This is the second year of the podcast with every week on Monday a new episode about the history and heritage of Palestine as well as the reality of life today. I hope you will enjoy today's episode. Today I'm recording for Stories from Palestine podcast from a special location. It's actually very close to our Singer Cafe and we've just had a very nice breakfast together with a couple of foreign women who live here in Palestine. You know all that my husband's from Jerusalem, but most of the women here are married to Palestinians from the West Bank. And we have been invited by our friend Lara, who is going to guide us through this conversation, because I'm going to be part of the conversation today. And the conversation is about visa issues, about living as a foreign person. We are all women, but there are some men in the same situation, married to a Palestinian. And what are the consequences of that, of that choice that we once all made and we didn't know what we were putting ourselves into? <laughs> yeah. And we're having this conversation partially because of Lara's research, and she will introduce herself and say something about that. And partially because we think that the podcast audience also should hear a bit about what is going on here regarding visa issues. So, Lara, please introduce yourself and then we will hear from all of us who we are and we will start our talk. <laughs> okay. Hi, I'm Lara with British Academy Project on Visa Precarity, led by Dr. Mark Griffiths at Newcastle University. And we've been conducting research on the effects of visa precarity on internationals living in Palestine and under Israeli rule, and then the effects that that has on Palestinians and Palestinian society. So I'll go ahead and let everyone else introduce themselves. Well, hi, I'm coming from Eastern uh, Europe. I've been living here in the West Bank, uh, precisely in Bejala, for the last uh, nine years. I'm a mother of two children. By profession, I'm an Orthodox theologian, and also I have a master in conflict resolution. Hi, I'm living in Bethlehem. It's been more than 10 years that I'm here. I'm married yeah, to a Palestinian, obviously. <laughs> and uh, I'm mother of uh, one child. I have a daughter. Hi, um, I am an American. I've been living in Palestine for over 10 years now. I'm married with two children, and I also work for an, an American nonprofit organization. Hello, I'm from the Netherlands, and I've been living here since a year of nine, I believe, in Bethlehem with my husband. I'm a mother to two, and I'm a consultant with international organizations. 
Yeah, and uh, I'm uh, married to a Palestinian from East Jerusalem, so not from the West Bank like uh, the other ladies. And, well, we'll talk about that, how that is different. But I came here first time on an olive harvest program. And since then, I've never missed an olive harvest. And we're <laughs> in October, so we're going to have another one. It's probably my 13th one. My husband and I run Singer Cafe and yeah, I do the podcast and I, we have two children. Just before I give the floor back to, to Lara, can you say in a few words, how do you see Palestine? What does Palestine mean to you? We have a lot of podcast listeners who've been here, who are interested, who are Palestinians. And I think they may be interested to know, how do you see that country when you actually live here? I can share my experience being here, like first few years of my life, it was horrible. <laughs> I'm honest. It's really, you come from a free European country and you end up in a prison and you just feel like you're you are really in a, a serious prison. But then I remember first three, four years of my life here, I met uh, wonderful girls from our group, uh, foreigners married to Palestinian, and one older German woman who's also, she was married to Palestinian. When she heard my horrible story of struggling here, she was like, well, you know, first seven years, it's horrible. After that, <laughs> it's really nice. And I was like, really? I still need to suffer a couple of years more? And actually, that's true. Now, now I'm nine years here and I just, this is my home. I, I love this place. I just, you need to give some time to Palestine. I love it. I just love it. It's a wonderful place to live. So Palestine is my home. It took, yeah, many years to call it home. It's so different from where I come from. I come from Baltic states. It's a very harsh place to live in, but there is some beauty in it. And um, I just try every day to see that beauty and not to see the struggles that we are going through. So it's my home and I love it. I used to come to Palestine before I moved here. So I had a little bit more idea of what I was coming to when I made the decision to get married and move here. It was a big adjustment, I think. We have tried living abroad and we made the choice for our family that Palestine is where we want to raise our children. You know, my children were both born in Palestine. We felt that that was really important for their identities, that they had the opportunity to be born here, which um, so many Palestinians in exile don't have. You know, we're part of a wonderful community. The kids are happy despite the hardships of living under occupation. And I think that that is sometimes missed when we talk about Palestine, the ways that people do find to thrive and make home and a life here. Well, what can I add? Uh, for me, yeah, it really is a, a place of extremes. Yeah, and extreme love and extreme, yeah, and such a will to live and such a will to make a, a beautiful life under such, yeah, and strange and difficult and confusing circumstances. Yeah, it's really extremes. Thank you so much. Um, that's such a good question. <laughs> I think quickly, if we can, just go through how everyone ended up in Palestine. And then, so a brief description, and you're, some of you already mentioned, like, you knew what you were getting into, you didn't know what you were getting into. But also, if you can touch on what your status is now in terms of your visa or, you know, the way that you're staying, and how often you have to renew it, just to sort of situate everyone's unique position. I met my husband outside, like in, in Sweden, and 
few fall in love in each other. And I was like, yeah, it will be interesting to go to visit Palestine, you know, as, as a theologian, especially. So first time when I came here, it was really like, I'm going to a, a fairy tale. You know, I sit in the plane, I was reading a Bible. I'm going to a holy land. It was like, oh my God, it's like, this is a dream. And, I, and then that dream was like, oh, wow. When I face reality and that sign, like you are entering Palestinian area, it was very, very strange. And that's actually once when I was uh, faced with this reality, I just couldn't run away from it, you know. So by time I was like, yeah, I'm going to stay and live here to to understand life here and to explore what actually is in a Bible and, and all this that I was studying for years, you know. And uh, this is how I end up. I marry my Palestinian husband and it's been nine years I've been living here. And as I said, I have two children. And after nine years of life here, my status is still visitor. I get visa every few months, which means every... Th in the beginning, it was like almost every year. We were, most of us foreigners married to Palestinians, we were getting one year visa. And then by time gets shorter and shorter. Now it's like every three months, just like uh, any, any tourist, any pilgrims who comes to visit Holy Land. We get a three months visa and every three months we need to pay for it, renew and to pray to God to get, uh, uh, once I got visa, uh, only one month. Uh, you know, that was like a punishment <laughs> visa. So that, as I said, we always pray like, oh, hopefully this time we will get a little bit longer. But lately it's been only three months visa. So our status for most of us is like uh, visitors, not permitted to work. It's written in visa and only Judea and Samaria. This means that oh, we can use it only, we can stay only in the West Bank. We don't have freedom to move between what is called Israel and Palestine. So I met my husband through Christian dating site, and he came to my country. So he was uh, like, uh, I saw, I, I was not looking for somebody. I just put my profile there, and he was the first man to write me. And I see he writes uh, from Jerusalem. He's born in Jerusalem. So I'm like, wow, there are actually people living in Jerusalem. Yeah, Christian. Christian, you know, wow, what is that really? Like uh, you said, a fairy tale or something interesting. And so we started to chat and we invited him through a mission organization in my hometown. And he came uh, as a musician uh, and participated in different camps. And this is first how we got to know. And then I came here and discovered. And the first thing that uh, hit me was the wall. What is that? So because I didn't know much about Palestine and what's going on here. And uh, yeah, a visa, it's a visitor's category, B2, I guess for all of us living here and nothing has changed since many years. To add yeah, to this uh, previously said restrictions, we can't use, for example, Ben-Gurion Airport. We had to go through special um, border crossing point in Jericho and we can travel out our homelands or to any other countries only through Amman. We are not allowed to travel through Ben-Gurion Airport. I first came to Palestine in 2004, and I came as a volunteer with two Palestinian organizations, one in Tahitia refugee camp and one in Jerusalem. And I was kind of, uh, it was shocking first day here. You know, I was picked up by the airport by a Palestinian taxi driver who was late to pick me up because his son had left a toy gun in the car. And at the checkpoint entering the airport, it was, you know, a plastic gun. I think it was green. You know, it was very clearly a toy on the floor of the car. 
But the Israeli soldiers, because he was a Palestinian, had the driver get out of his car, had him laying down on the ground while they searched the car and did all of these scans. So I was, you know, waiting on the curb for an hour, wondering what's going on. Finally, you know, the driver came to get me and told me what happened, which, you know, resonated, I guess, as an American with uh, racism in the United States. This is a story you can easily imagine there as well. And then he drove me to Bethlehem. I was to go to Dehesha Refugee Camp, which is one of the three camps in the Bethlehem area. But that day, actually, the Israeli soldiers had blocked off all of the entrances to Bethlehem. There was no roads going in. So we tried, you know, from here, from there, from the south, nothing worked. And finally, you know, he ha had to arrange with somebody to meet me on the other side. And I, you know, got out my luggage, walked over a hill and found another driver on the other side. So these were my first uh, hours <laughs> in Palestine. And I spent my first few months in Palestine living in the Haitian refugee camp in 2004. So it was this second intifada. And, you know, it's still true in a lot of areas of Palestine, you know, of nightly raids of Israeli soldiers coming and arresting people from their homes. They always do this in the, the middle of the night. And this was something really shocking. You know, I would be working late in the computer lab, da da da, working on some sort of proposal or something. You hear the noises, you go to the window and you see these, you know, massive armored jeeps running into the camp and then taking people handcuffed and blindfolded, you know, in their pajamas. And the family doesn't know what or why is this is happening. So that was how I first came to Palestine. And then I continued coming back uh, every year for a few months and got to know my husband over time. And when we got married, we got married here because it was, he has a much larger family. Um, <laughs> and it was more important to his family, the celebration of our wedding. So we decided to get married here. And a few of my family and friends came. And we have lived here most of the years since we've been married. Was that the question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and your visa status. Oh, my visa status, you know, I couldn't say anything regular about my visa status. It has been so varied. In the years since I got married, you know, you would think that would bring more stability than before I was coming just on my American passport. You know, you get a three-month visa. I was able sometimes to renew it. The visas are controlled by the Israeli government. And so, you know, I, I thought there would be some sort of process, a clear process for me once I was married and living here. But I continued, I was able to get uh, in the beginning one year visas. They're not multiple entry. So as soon as you leave, your visa is canceled. Every time you come back, it is the decision of an Israeli soldier or Israeli bureaucrat at the airport or the bridge who decides whether you can come in or not. We did apply for family unification, I think about a year after I was married. At that point, you know, my husband actually didn't want me to apply. He said, you know, as an American, you have so much more freedom here. You know, just on a regular visa, I could travel through the airport. Then, you know, I could rent cars and go to Jerusalem, all of these things. I didn't do it much because, of course, my husband and our friends and family couldn't. But I said, you know, we don't know what the future holds, so let's apply. That was back in maybe 2009, 2010. But family unification had been frozen by the Israelis. They control the 
Palestinian population registry, and they decide whether or not anyone can get residency here. So it's been many years and uh, nothing moved, you know, it's not like, oh, you do this step and then another step. It's like we applied and the file uh, stayed where it was in Ramallah for a decade. You know, recently there has been quote unquote goodwill gesture and they will be giving family unification for, you know, a very limited number of people, even though this is a right that all families should be able to access, but Israel prevents it. Sorry, this is getting long. <laughs> so I think, uh, but my visa status, you know, I have been at times without a visa. And at times I've had a two-month visa or it's, it's I wouldn't say there's a, a one thing I could say about my visa status. Yeah. <laughs> I came here in 2010 in between my bachelor and master program as a volunteer and as a way to see something of the world outside our uh, our classrooms and outside our universities and it was quite an eye-opening experience and I met my husband that year and yeah I've been around since then basically uh, completing my master's in Europe and then coming back to continue volunteering and continue searching for work so I knew quite a bit about, you know, or I developed my understanding about Palestine and the political situation and, and all that and about, you know, religion and culture. But I didn't know much about visa status. Actually, when I got married, I didn't even know about spousal visas until I was a few months in, you know, into my marriage. So there's not really like a very easy way to find out about stuff like that. So... Regarding my visa, in the beginning, I always used uh, tourist visas going inside and outside the country for, you know, every three months. And very stressful and almost traumatic experiences for me, I must say, because I always used to lie. I don't know how other women go about that, but or if they're like very comfortable liars, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, for me, it was so stressful, especially... Because I used to volunteer with, you know, just local Palestinian organizations or even intern with NGOs or INGOs that only have a Palestinian presence. So they always said, I cannot give you any security about your visa. You should just make up something, you know, should just tell some lies about, oh, I'm working with this Tel Aviv organization or I'm lying at the beach all day. And I you know, it's for me, it was very stressful to keep that up. So I always have been searching, you know, in my first years being here for some kind of security, searching for a job that could give me a work visa. So after some time, I found a job with an organization that was able to support me with some hesitation from the management, of course, because they were like, okay, what are we getting ourselves into with the Jewish administration? It worked to get a B2 work visa, which is still a restricted visa. You know, it's restricted to the West Bank because the headquarters of that organization were in Ramallah. But it worked for me out to get two times a yearly visa. So I had to renew that every year. The third time, I was then already married by that time. The third time I wanted to renew, I got rejected. So I wasn't sure exactly why, but it might have to do with the reason that every 27 months you have to leave the country once. And I hadn't been traveling those two years. So I got up to the point of almost 27 months that I had to leave the country. But my last time traveling was pretty traumatic and I had my work visa. So I was like, oh, this could, uh, you know, this can go very smoothly. I can tell them everything about my work in Ramallah because they accepted my work visa. So I thought my papers were in order. But as a practicing Muslim, I was wearing my headscarf and 
I, I think that, of course, had a thing to it. I cannot know. Anyways, the situation was very traumatic for me. I kept being questioned for hours and hours on end. They kept saying, me, you're lying, you're doing this activity, you're doing that activity. We have proof, we have pictures, we have everything in a computer. Here, it's coming up. You're going to protest and you're throwing stones. And I was like, I've never been close to a stone in my life. You know, I've never been close to a protest. Yes, I love working with Palestinian organization, but this hasn't been in my range of activities at all to go to protest. So they were really making up lies, but in such a way that was so stressful so in the end, they're saying, oh, we're going to deny your visa. Go sit in that other room. And I was sitting for hours in another small room. And then in the end, some guy waves to me and I'm like, okay, I'm leaving my husband. You know, I was married at the time. I had my son at the time. And I was like, okay, this is the end. You know, I'm being sent out. And then he said, okay, here's your visa. Go. And I'm like, what? But they were just, you know, kind of like torturing me or was it maybe you know the one department said oh yeah we don't like her let's let's you know remove her and the other department said oh yeah but she has a work leave or whatever let her go I don't know what happened but anyways that decision or that experience really made me decide I don't want to travel so when they denied my work visa when basically they said okay you're 27 months you should leave the country but I don't want to leave the country you know I have my family here I just want to stay I didn't like my travel experience there's no reason for me to go out I didn't go out. So I stayed. I stayed in the ego. I haven't had any visa <clears throat> since then. We did apply for family unification. So maybe, you know, a little twinkle of hope that at some point I get uh, a Palestinian ID. But yeah, that's my visa status for now. Thank you so much. I want to like open it up for more stories. So I think I'll just give a broader question and maybe we can like popcorn or however. I don't want to make you stand, <laughs> Crystal, over the whole. <laughs> um, but I think a good question is what impact does your status, you know, whether it's a lack of status or like, you know, status that comes and goes, have on your ability or the ways that your ability to operate? or the ways that you operate in your daily life. So what does daily life look like? Can you go through checkpoints? Do you go through checkpoints? Do you travel from the north to the south of the West Bank or from the, we're in the center? So from the center to the north or the south, what do you do to stay safe in your life? Can your family visit you? What does social media interaction look like? Just kind of a broad idea of what does daily life look like? What does movement look like? I think I will start so you have some time to think about it because my situation is very different from the others because my husband is from Jerusalem and has a Jerusalem residency and that means that we are able to cross the checkpoints. So we can be on the Jerusalem side, on the Israeli side of the wall and we can be on the West Bank side of the wall. And that has made, in a way, our life much easier and I feel very privileged. I already feel privileged because I'm white and I have to make this remark because when I cross the checkpoints, the soldiers generally 99% of the time, they don't even stop the car. They think that we are settlers coming from the settlements so we can easily cross. My daughter realizes that when she's with her father or her grandfather in the car, they get much more often stopped and checked. And she's already been asking me about that. So we've already had a conversation about white privilege with a seven-year-old. But for us, it means that going to the school of the children and going to the work, to the cafe, we have to cross the checkpoints every day. And this is extremely frustrating because the drive from my home in Beit Safafa to the center of Bethlehem is not more than 10 minutes. And 
if you have to go around to other checkpoints because the main checkpoint is closed or because on your way back, especially from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, where you get stopped and where you have to wait in a long line, usually I choose not to wait in that extremely long line because it's super frustrating. So you drive around and you can take other checkpoints that were made for the settlers to pass. So they are coming from their settlements and they're going to Jerusalem and they have these special checkpoints. They do stop people who look like Palestinians, who look like Arabs, but they wave through all the people who look like settlers. So that's much quicker, but in the same time, it's a detour. And every day, every day I think about this, like, which checkpoint shall I take today? Oh, today is Saturday. It's Shabbat. It means that Jewish people are not driving their cars, so that road will be faster. Or, oh, it's a, a Friday evening. Shabbat will start now, so they will probably start checking all the, the people on that checkpoint. So basically every day it's like a logistics question for me, but at least I can go and travel. So for me, with my Jerusalem ID, it's I'm able to, to travel around. But for example, yeah, my friends here, they are not able to go to Jerusalem. So I don't know if you can say something about that. Till a few years ago, we could still, most of us, go. Even by public bus, we will sit in a, in a public transportation and go from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. And even they check us, us our visas and there were no problems. But since I think it was 2017, a year when each one of us were uh, invited for an, quote, interview from the Israeli military, because the, the West Bank is uh, under military occupation of Israeli military occupation. So we are under rule of the military side. So each one of us foreign uh, women married to Palestinians were invited for an interview in Betil. In the beginning, first few foreigners were invited by themselves without their husbands, without their lawyers. They were interrogated like they were criminals. It was uh, horrible. Then those girls, they shared their experiences with us, others. So by time we spread the, the word and we called some journalists to write about the situation, which ended up in Israelis being a little bit less harsher on us. Then when it was my turn to be invited for an interview, it was end of 2017, I think, or 2018, I'm not sure. I was uh, able to be there uh, at the interview with my husband. Me, like all other foreigners, were literally, we were forced to sign a document in which was written the restrictions of our visa, which means we can stay there if we sign the document where it's written that we are just visitors, we are not permitted to work, and the visa is only for Judea and Samaria, which means only for the West Bank. And uh, just short experience, when I went to that interview, the first question that the Israeli uh, woman soldier asked me was, are you a Christian? That was the first question. I said, yes, not only Christian, I'm an Orthodox Christian, I'm a theologian, that's my vocation. And the second question was, are you going to Jerusalem? I said, yeah, because that's the most holiest place for all Christians in the whole world. It's in Holy Sepulchre Church in Jerusalem. She said, oh, no, 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 you, you have a church in Bethlehem, you can go there. So literally, she said, um, now I will give you a visa if you sign this document that you will not go to Jerusalem nor anywhere in Israel. This is the only way you will get the visa. And I was like, well, do you understand? This is the, the violation of basic, basic human rights, freedom of movement and freedom of religion. She said, well, yeah, that's the, that's the, the only way for you 
I said, yeah, but I'm not a criminal. Why are you treating me like this? She said, no, no, I know that you are not criminal. That's why we are allowing you to stay with your husband in Bethlehem because you marry him and he's from Bethlehem, Bejala area. So sign the document that you will not go to church in Jerusalem or anywhere in Jerusalem and you will get the visa. So that was really the, the humiliation, the, the, the treatment that that woman soldier was, uh, the way she was treating us, me and my husband, it was absolutely horrible. I told her, do you understand that you are forcing me to choose between my husband and my God? She said, yeah, but that's the, that's the only way to stay here. Horrible. And I asked her, just, I just need to ask this question. And she was like, yeah, ask, what if this happened to one Jew person in my country, in the middle of Europe or any other country, that one Jew person is prevented to go to pray in a synagogue, what will happen? She was really pissed off, pardon my French. She was really pissed off and she said, well, don't ask me that here. I'm an army woman. Ask me outside and I will tell you what will happen, you know? So it, you can see the blatant violation of basic, basic human rights. So it was in May uh, that I had urgent situation to go back to my country and I was given just a few days to go. So I left uh, West Bank. You know, we are in Corona times and I wasn't sure how, how it happens with traveling and so on. So before I traveled, I was in contact with the military base uh, as to coordinate my going out and my coming in. And so they, yeah, they wrote me an email. I can just leave, yeah, without uh, any problem. And they sent me papers to apply for re-entry. So I did all that and I went back to my country. As I said, it was urgent need. It wasn't for traveling. It was, yeah, uh, family issues. I needed to go. I thought I will be maximum months out of uh, country. Also, now they say that, yeah, you need 45 days to get this special permit to come back. But it lasted, uh, it lasted four months that I was out and separated from my family. I left my daughter, my husband. It was quite a humiliating experience because you are in contact with this military base and asking, when can I come back? When will you give me this permit? And they just keep answering, it's in process. No explanation, how long, when you can come back. What's the status of your application? And it's a new thing for us because, yeah, you could travel in normal times. Yeah, you could travel through Jordan and come back easily. But now, because of this pandemic, they are asking us who are married, you know, who we should have right to just come to back to our fam families. They're asking for this special permit. And it's, it's something new, yeah. And they even don't have a special office here in military base for that. So it kind of gets stuck in between the military base and the Bingurian border control uh, office that issues these permits. And uh, yeah, some people uh, wait uh, months, uh, some they get uh, less than 45 days. So we don't know what's the reason who receives it fast, who, why somebody waits. But uh, the experience is quite humiliating. So I needed, at the end, uh, thanks God to my friends who supported me, I could hire a lawyer. And I get this permit in two weeks. 
Yeah, so if I knew it earlier, you know, uh, I would have done it earlier, but kind of it was also a money issue, and we are many here uh, without work, you know, and it's uh, it's a hard thing, and many still, yeah, they are outside, and they are waiting for this special permit to come back to their families or to visit their families. One lady also, after I posted about this and shared my experience, she wrote me, she's from neighboring country where I'm from, and she said, oh, how are you, like, what's going on? because I'm also out, but with my husband and my kid. So it's kind of different, but she also, they want to come visit their family and she's afraid, okay, I will go, but uh, I might stay on the border and not be let in in West Bank. And uh, what's the point then to, to come and visit your family? You will be separated on the border. And it's happening currently. And, and it's a new thing that they are doing to us. And it's very cruel, I would say. Um, because of our visa, um, we are quite restricted where we can move and who can visit us. And like real cases, I have many friends back in my country. And of course, I want them to come and visit me. But it's so hard to uh, just invite them, come visit me. And uh, there was few times when some friends, they were uh, coming to visit me. And uh, of course, we had backup plan and what we're going to say and do. But basically, they figure out things in Ben Gurion Airport. And then they got imprisoned. I had two friends who got imprisoned in Ben-Gurion prison. It's not a hostel or something nice to stay. It's a real prison where people are kept. And uh, we had two of my friends imprisoned till they were sent back with the next uh, uh, airplane back to their home country. Yeah, it's, it hurts, you know, like you, I want my family to come. I want my friends to come, but I'm not really allowed to say, oh, come visit me. So we had to figure out ways how they can come. And yeah, they can't re really say that, you know, oh, I have a friend living here. And it's it's heartbreaking. And I miss that, you know, people would come visit me just because, you know, they are my friends or my family. Exactly. Um, I, for me, myself, I don't travel or move at all outside my um hometown yeah where I live now with my husband because of my visa status and I'm actually just I've tried to build my life around this to not think about what if I had a visa I could do this I really my work life my family life my home life it's all in my little bubble my little circle that I have if I leave sometimes my husband encourages me he says yalla let's go to the next city yalla let's do some shopping there I went a few times but I'm just really paralyzed by fear the whole road even if there's maybe like one percent chance only that something happens but it's that one percent that makes me just so fearful and I I thought as a person I wouldn't be this fearful personality but I don't know why it's maybe it's something because there's so much you feel you tell yourself you're not doing something wrong you know they're on the wrong side but that in the end that they are the ones in control and I thought I wouldn't care, you know, I'm this strong European person and, uh, you know, I'm a very grounded person. I'm not, you know, blown over by fear like this. But in the end, I am because I have my, you know, my children and I have my husband that I don't want to lose. And there are the stories of people who are being sent back, you know, so it's not, there's this huge unclarity, of course, like, will this happen? You know, you never know it's going to happen. But there are stories of people who have been in a similar situation, who have been here illegal, who have been passing checkpoints and who have been taken out of line and sent back because they are not having the right papers and they've not followed the rules of the system. So yeah, this is fearful. And the same as the, the other friend who had her friends sent back, 
this also has happened to, to me. People who have told the truth, who said, oh yeah, I have this organization in Palestine that I want to visit, or I have this friend living in Bethlehem that I want to visit. That was sometimes enough for the border control to send them back, to put them in prison and send them back. They said, we don't want you to go there. So yeah, there is this big fear, especially my parents sometimes try to come before COVID, before Corona, and they never tell the truth. They always lie. And it's always this not in the stomach day, the travel day, you know, you, you just crush your fingers, you say everything goes well, everything goes well, inshallah. And they're just playing these wonderful Christian tourists that are coming to visit the Holy Land. And, and so far it always goes fine, but you just, you know, you just don't hope to ever experience the day that your parents are being put in a prison and uh, sent back. Yeah, so you try to really normalize your life around, you know, to not think about it and to not really have to deal with it. You just build your life in a way, you know, in the space that you have. Um, I guess um, I spent about two years without a visa living here. My visa was denied because it was up for renewal at a time that my husband was not in the country. He was outside for a course. I had been given at the airport only an 11-day visa when I came in with my son after spending the holidays with family in the U.S. And so I had to quickly go to apply. It was denied. It was very stressful. I was six months pregnant at the time. So already here with one child in kindergarten and six months pregnant without my husband. And then I found myself, you know, with no papers to be here legally. I think, you know, I related to what you said about, you know, how I thought I would handle things and then how I really did. Um, you know, I was very fearful. I did not uh, go outside of the area. You know, there, even within the West Bank, there can be checkpoints. There are some permanent checkpoints and sometimes there are flying checkpoints. So when, you know, we would be invited to go to a town 20 minutes away, I would stay home. I didn't want to risk it. And so my small world became even smaller. And I know I am a white American, you know, I have an American passport and have the ability to pass most checkpoints. People would say, oh, it'll be fine, da, da, da. But it's, nobody knows it would be fine. Because if a soldier at the checkpoints asks for your visa and looks you up in the computer, they can then take you to the airport and you have to leave and you don't know if you will ever be able to come back. And so, you know, the risks that I'm willing to take for myself are different than the risks I'm willing to take for my family. And so I just uh, really tried as much as I can not to leave the area and to make a life <laughs> in this very small area. And then, of course, right after I finally did get a visa just a month before the first coronavirus cases came. So I didn't have a chance really to to go visit family or to move around uh, inside the West Bank before that. So now it's been oh, about four years since I've been able to go home and visit family and friends. Because this summer, you know, I did have a valid visa from Israel and technically I could leave and then apply to come back. But uh, because of that, you need to apply to come back. I felt like I couldn't handle the stress. These last few years have been so stressful around status and I just couldn't risk the psychological impact of being separated again or being stuck again. All of us, obviously, having uh, the same issue of visa 
coming in. I also had, beside this problem, I had a problem last year when I wanted to go out from the West Bank. I wanted to, I needed actually, it was just like beginning of Corona pandemic. I found out by chance or by God's provision, <laughs> obviously in that moment, that I have a life-threatening uh, situation, arteriovenous malformation in the brain. It's like uh, blood vessels that can actually rupture any moment. So it was very uh, like life-threatening situation. And I needed to do a treatment, brain surgery. At that time, I had health insurance through my husband, but it's only for the Palestinian side. It's not accepted in Israel. And because there is no specialist in Palestine, I either could try to do it in Israel, in Tel Aviv, and the price will be extremely, extremely high. Or I go to my home country and do it there. And that was a more logical thing. So the thing is that it was already Corona pandemic. We couldn't apply all of us foreigners. We couldn't do our usual way of applying, going to the Ministry of Interior to apply for visa or to Betil in, in Ramallah. We automatically we were said by the Israeli side that all of us automatically, we got visa approval extension till the end of August. So we didn't have visa in our passport, but in the system, in the Israeli system, in the Israeli computers, we were there. So I got the medical report from a doctor where it's written, a Palestinian doctor from a hospital, that I need to do as soon as possible due to high risk of the bleeding, I need to do a surgery. We pack our things. We got the approval from the Israeli side that uh, me, my husband and our two kids, we can travel to Ben Gurion because it's an emergency case. So we pack ourselves and uh, like one in the morning from Bejala, we went to a tunnel checkpoint, which is just uh, nearby. We were stopped by two 17-year-old Israeli soldiers. They check our passports and they said to me, oh, you don't have visa, you cannot go. I said, as you can see, I have a European passport. I have uh, medical records. I need urgently to go outside of this country, to go to my home country to do a surgery. He said, no, 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 no. You don't have visa. You can just go back. Your husband and your kids, they can travel. You cannot. I mean, the... <laughs> The irony of the occupation, like you can see it in, in every, every moment of your life here. It's ridiculous. I'm a foreign citizen with a foreign passport. I need to travel. I have a proof that I need urgently to travel. He said, no, no, no. I, I begged him. I don't speak Hebrew. I speak a little bit Arabic and English. I begged him, please just click on your computer. Just check. I'm there. I have visa. We all have visas, foreigners, you know. Because, and I explained, my husband explained to him in Arabic, he didn't, he just said, like, literally, 17-year-old boy said, no, you don't have visa, go back to Bethlehem. So that's one of the issues uh, uh, visa-related. And I just want to mention, we are all in the situation when we need to apply for visa, we are forced month in advance, our visa expired, we need to apply for new visa. There were many cases for women that they got only a month long visa in which they need to apply for a visa, for a new visa. You know, they, they made horrible situation, horrible regarding visa. Regarding impact that visa restrictions have on us, it's horrible that our basic human rights are denied freedom of movement. And the other one for me, I think more painful is the freedom to work. We are not allowed to work. None of us, uh, at least the, the women that I know, we are all regular, normal European, American world citizens. Most of us are uh, educated women. We came here, we, we are living here with our families. 
and we are not allowed to work. And this is also the way how Israelis are trying to impose patriarchy and chauvinism on the Palestinian side by saying, you see, Palestinians are not allowed in their women, especially foreign women, they are not working, which is by them, by the Israeli side, because they are the ones who are preventing us to work. It's absolutely ridiculous that in the 21st century, the basic human rights of right to work is denied for so many people here. And this is one of the things that it's the huge, the biggest impact that uh, visa restrictions had on us. Earlier you mentioned your problems going through checkpoints, traveling. Those problems we don't have because we don't travel. We are not allowed to go to Jerusalem. We are not allowed. You know, the beach is just half an hour. The Palestinian beach, you know, that's the Palestine. It's just half an hour from us and we are not allowed to go. We are not allowed to go to church in, in Jerusalem. You know, those are really the basic things that, that are prevented, that are us foreigners are not allowed, like many, many other Palestinians as well. I'm complaining and sharing experiences in the same time people who were born here, you know, like my mother-in-law who was born in, in Bethlehem, who's a Christian, she's not allowed to visit church just 15 minutes drive from here, you know. So it's also we are sharing us. And in a way, we are very privileged because we as a foreigners, we all came from somewhere. We have our first home somewhere there. Palestinians who've been living here, you know, I can just pack my things and say, listen, Hollis, I can't handle this anymore. I need to, I need to go. And I have a privilege to go. Palestinians who were born in the West Bank, they don't have where to go, where they can travel, where they don't have other homes, you know, and they've been living here in a horrible, horrible, harsh circumstances that is imposed by the longest in a recent human history, longest military occupation. For me, as a resident of Jerusalem, we have another situation, is that we must live in Jerusalem. So we must prove that the center of our life is in Jerusalem and that we had to do this over the past seven years, me and my husband, for seven years in a row. Every year you have to bring papers showing that you are paying Arnona, which is the taxes to the house, that you are paying the kahraba, the electricity, the maya, the water, that you have your children in school, that you have a job. And every year you are waiting for the Ministry of Interior to give you or not give you the extension to your residency permit. And I had to give birth to my children in Jerusalem because otherwise I will not have this Jerusalem residency for my kids. So I did not have a choice to go back to Holland to give birth there, which was all right. I mean, we managed But it was very strange to see that the Jewish Israelis that were giving birth to their children in the same day as me were giving birth certificates with ID numbers on the same day as the birth. And we have, for our daughter, we have waited and fought for about 10 months before we finally got it, which meant that my parents never got to see my children as babies. Still, they can travel and come here. You know, it's like it's been horrible when people are not able to come here. Yeah, for my mom, she managed to to come and visit us. But for my dad, because of her personal circumstances, he couldn't come. My sister, she can't come. She has a handicapped daughter and she can't travel with her. So I feel that they've taken away the possibility. You, you can never get that back. Your children grow older, so they never hold the my babies in their arms. And I think at that time I was 
And I'm always a fighter and an activist. And I didn't want to give up uh, just like easily. So I remember by, or, uh, I remember getting a onesie for my daughter and having a text printed on it that said, I want my ID number, please. And I put my daughter, she was maybe by that time six, seven months, on the desk of the clerk in the Ministry of Interior. And I showed her the shirt. And that woman, didn't. she didn't know what to say because she all of a sudden realized that we were waiting for that so desperately. And for her, we were just number. You know, the people that come to that office, for them, it's just, you're just another person. You're just another number. You're not, just a file. And all of a sudden, I think that she opened her eyes for our situation. And then she picked up the phone and she started to do a phone call. And eventually I had to fake a letter that my father was so sick that we had to travel to Holland in order to see him before he would die, which wasn't true, but we had to do that in order for us to finally get that ID number on a birth certificate, and then we could make a Dutch passport to travel, because my children also, they don't have passports here. This is also a difference. I think uh, most of your children, they have can have a Palestinian passport, so that's their travel document. And for uh, Palestinians in Jerusalem, they don't have citizenship they only have residency so they can't get a passport to travel with what they can get is a travel document a laissez-passer and in our case because they have the dutch passport now so they get a re-entry visa as a returning resident to the country where they were born to the country where their grandparents and great-grandparents for generations are from and then when this new entity started Israel as a country, started to make the rules. They said, well, you're here, but you're not a citizen. You're a resident. If you can't prove that you're living in Jerusalem, we will retake your residency and you cannot live here anymore. And that's something, and then I will finish with this story, that happened on the last visit to the Ministry of Interior last week, where I finally, alhamdulillah, thanks God, I got my long-term permanent residency I met my Palestinian friend who is from Jerusalem, her family for generations living in Jerusalem. She has a foreign husband, an Italian husband, and they spent last year, one year out of the country because of her studies and his work. And she found herself pregnant during that one year. And she came here to give birth so that she would get a residency number for her baby And when she came to the Ministry of Interior, by chance, on the same day as we went, I saw her there, they wouldn't give her the residency number for her baby because she had spent last year abroad. So now they want her to spend the next two years proving that the center of her life is in Jerusalem. In the same moment, they told her that her Italian husband will not get family unification because he spent last year out of Jerusalem. They cancel and close the case, which means it's going to be extremely hard to reopen it, meaning that her husband can only come here as a tourist. He cannot live here. So now she finds herself with this choice of having to leave the country with her husband and raise her two children abroad or staying here, have her daughter finally get the Jerusalem residency number after two years, but not live with her husband. I could not celebrate on that day 
finally obtaining the, the residency that I was waiting for for so long because I saw how my friend's life was destroyed by that decision. So these are different set of experiences from women who are living in the West Bank and in my case in Jerusalem for uh, yeah our consequences. <laughs> I just want to make it clear, uh, like understandable for people who are listening that mentioning visas and family unifications and uh, IDs on the West Bank side. The thing is that, that even though we live under uh, Palestinian authority, every document that Palestinians who've been living here and us foreigners, we need approval from the Israeli side. So we, most of us foreign women uh, married to Palestinians, we applied for family unification and for Palestinian IDs, so we can get Palestinian passports. But it's not the Palestinian authority who will approve, it's Israeli. They are the ones who are controlling everything. And that's very important to understand. This is how occupation works. Because many people ask me from outside, so what's the problem? Apply for Palestinian passport and you will get it from Palestinians. It doesn't work like this. The Israeli who sits in his office on a computer, the soldier is the one who will decide whether we will get it or not, Palestinian passport or family unification or, or any other documents. This is how also when we give a birth to our kids here, they are Palestinian children and they will be in their father's ID. They need to get ID number. But even that ID number that our kids will, will get, they need approval from the Israeli side. You know, So this is just the one side of the picture to have the whole picture in head for people who are listening, how the occupation works. Um, have you had any contact with your embassy or consulate? And can you talk about that? And then uh, explain what would you have them do for you? If you could speak openly with them, what would you ask them to do for you? No, I haven't. I haven't had any contact with my embassy. I thought about contacting them when I was at the border and in the process of being denied, but I only contacted my employer who had given my um, work visa. But no, I have not, because I thought they would not be of any use, to be honest. And also because I wasn't even sure if it would put me into more in the spotlight and more in a danger, because they would be like, oh, we can contact them officially. Let's see, let me give me all your details and let's see what we can do for you. I didn't want that approach to backfire at me, to be honest. So no, I didn't. The American embassy has a lot of sway and power with the Israeli government. Um, actually, many years ago, when Israel first began this process of giving people visas for Judea and Samaria, which is not an actual piece of land, you know, there's no map you can point to and say this is Judea and Samaria. The US challenged the legality of this and got them to reverse it for American citizens. And then it disappeared as a policy. Then uh, later, you know, under the Trump administration, they brought the policy back and there was no objections from the American administration. And so now you see it, you know, for people like us who are spouses married to Palestinians, as well as people who are on work visas, getting this like very vague Judea and Samaria restrictions. So I did contact the American Citizen Services in Jerusalem several times. I have a hard time calling it the embassy because I don't want to recognize it as the embassy. And I'm not actually sure during that process what, which they were in Jerusalem. I lost track of the dates and the times. But 
I sent them, you know, letters uh, that went unanswered. And actually, after my daughter was born, we went to make her a U.S. passport. The U.S. does not have its own offices in the West Bank. And my husband and I were not able to go to Jerusalem. I actually, you know, had no legal status, so I shouldn't be anywhere. And we could not uh, risk going to Jerusalem because he doesn't have permit either. So we were able to get an appointment months and months and months later in Ramallah. Again, this went unanswered. You know, there are many American citizens living in Palestine and they don't give them the same services as they do if they're living in the inside Israel proper. And so they borrow the Canadian consulate offices every one, once a month or something like this to do citizen services in Ramallah. This was one of the few times that I left the town where I was living to go get the passport for my daughter because we had to both be present there. And I, because I'm the American parent, you know, I had to go with all of my documents. So this was very stressful. And I actually spoke to the consular officer there and I told her, look, this is my situation. You know, uh, one, you know, it took us months and months of complaining and calling. And finally, you know, I asked my congressperson in the US and I said, I need to get a passport for my daughter. And they called and then I got a response back and an appointment to go to Ramallah. And I told her, and also, you know, I have no legal status here. I'm an American citizen. I'm, you know, married. There's no reason for them not to give me a visa. And she was sympathetic and, you know, asked me to send in all of these things and sign disclosure forms and all of this. Um, but nothing came of that either. I was also part of a group of Americans. We met with representatives of the U.S. in Ramallah. This was at a time that I still had a visa, but many people were having visa problems. I think I had been given a one-month visa or something like this. And they met with us, a group of maybe, you know, 20, 30 people, American citizens. They heard people crying, stories of, you know, similarly almost getting turned back at the airport while holding their babies in their arms, trying to go home. And again, nothing came of that. You know, they did not follow up with us. They said, you know, that they were going to raise this with the Israeli counterparts and da da da. But um, there was no change in policy. There was no communication to us. This is what we did. This is what we tried. This is what we're going to do. It was very opaque. <laughs> so I come from country which is very small and insignificant, I would say, and they don't have offices in uh, West Bank, they have in Tel Aviv, and yeah, it's just uh, no use to contact them, um, and I have tried, I have tried, I would say, and uh, but, you know, you write an official email to a governmental establishment, and you don't even receive an answer. So what it says about uh, this case, you know, and uh, of course I can go to the embassy and get my papers done, but regarding my status here or other issues linked to that, they are just really, uh, they don't get to be involved in that and they don't want to even hear about that because they are not really interested in that. I had a, I have actually a contact uh, uh, with my embassy. The embassy of my country is in uh, Tel Aviv. They usually uh, remind me of the fact that uh, since it's in, in Tel Aviv, they remind me that officially they shouldn't uh, work with uh, 
compatriots who are living in the West Bank, and that officially I should refer to my country's embassy in the closest country, which is in the town, which is Cairo, which is ridiculous. I'm not going to neither call nor go to Cairo <laughs> for documents. So they, they'll be willing to help. You know, they do provide the documents that we need. But uh, since I officially cannot go, uh, again, I'm going to emphasize the irony of occupation. I cannot go to Tel Aviv to take uh, documents that we need. So my Palestinian husband, who has a permit from the Israeli side, he can go and take the documents. But they are willing to help in those bureaucracy things, you know. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, I had that situation last year when I was uh, when I needed to travel urgently outside of the country. When the, that 70-year-old soldier said that I cannot travel, that I need to go back, it was like one in the morning. I called the embassy. I called a friend who is a friend of the of the consul. He explained the situation and he said, like, we need the help. I just want them to help me to go out from the West Bank to go to travel. He said, well, I cannot help her. She is in the West Bank. So this is how uh, usually embassies are uh, fighting between brackets for their fellow citizens who are living uh, in occupied Palestine. Another thing, another thing, just to say. <laughs> and uh, uh, whenever I um, share experience and, uh, as I said, violation, uh, blatant violation of basic human rights that Israelis are doing uh, for us, the embassy officials always, always, they, they listen my story and they say at the end, yeah, it's very uh, difficult, but we cannot do anything. We are just a guest here. This is internal Israeli policy. They cannot mess with our, my country's uh, internal policies. We cannot do that uh, for them as well. So we can just listen to your story, but we are not capable to do anything. We can't um, interfere in internal policies. If I may add another thing, all these visa restrictions, beside everyday difficulties that we are facing, like all other Palestinians, because we live in a Palestinian community, everything is made really perfectly, very, in a very clever way, way it's made from the Israeli side to make our life here miserable. We don't have water, you know, we have like water tanks on the Palestinian, uh, the moment you cross, you are traveling, you know, from Jerusalem in the car or bus, you know, you are going to visit as a pilgrim church in, in Bethlehem and like, you can see differences. You see, suddenly there are water tanks on, on the houses, you know, and then you know that you're on a Palestinian side, you know, there's no water, there's no freedom of movement. As I said, we can't work, we can't, you can't travel freely. Whatever policy Israelis are imposing on us and Palestinians here, the point of that policy or so-called rule is to kick us out from here. They don't want Palestinians here. They want to take the land, you know. So for sure, they don't, they don't want us educated foreign women who are coming here to live and support this community and to give birth to more Palestinian babies. They don't want us. They just want to kick us. But the one thing that they don't still, it seems, they didn't get it, that we are not leaving. This is our home. This is where our husbands were born and raised. This is the place where our husbands and we, as their wives, we have a right to live here. None of us is a criminal. None of us is, is doing anything wrong, anything bad, anything illegal. We are just regular human beings like Palestinians, and we have a right to live here with our families. 
you for listening to Stories from Palestine. If you enjoy the podcast, then here are several things you can do to support the show. Tell your friends about the podcast. Share some of the social media posts on Instagram or Facebook. Start following the YouTube channel. You can also hear the podcast audio there. And soon I will start uploading videos. Sign up for the email list so that you get a reminder with a clickable link to the new podcast episode. And in the future, you will be updated about programs and trips that I will start to organize. And of course, you can donate to help me pay for hosting the podcast and the website and all the related recording costs. It's the only source of income I have at the moment, so you can imagine how much I appreciate every cup of coffee or falafel sandwich that you buy me on the Kofi platform. All the links that you need can be found in the show notes and on the website storiesfrompalestine.info. That's it. I hope you will tune in again next week. <laughs>